This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. Welcome back to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women in sex addiction. My name is Amy. I'm your host here. I've been a sex addict and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. And I'm super excited to be back with you. I have had so much going on recently. And uh, and I want to share some of those things with you. Last weekend, I was at um, the ITAP Symposium. So ITAP, I-I-T-A-P, uh, stands for the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. And uh, it's the organization that was started by Patrick Carnes. And they're the organization that provides the CSAT certification, uh, the Certified Sex Addiction Therapist Certification uh, for therapists. Yeah. So I went to their symposium representing Worth Recovery. Can you believe it? It was so crazy. I was so excited to be there. And I was so excited to meet some of these people uh, that are kind of legends in my mind, right? Like Patrick Carnes, um, his daughter, Stephanie Carnes, who does a lot of research on sex addiction. Uh, Just so many people that have influenced my own personal recovery. It was a little overwhelming, a little emotional. And it was so energizing and amazing to be with these people who are doing the same work that I am, which is trying to help people recover from wherever they're at in their lives, recover from whether it's sexual addiction, sexual avoidance, whether it's trauma, whatever it is, just help people recover and move on with their lives. And it was so exciting and so amazing to be there. And so I have a lot of thoughts from that. So many thoughts. I could probably feel tons of episodes just on those thoughts, Uh, but we're not going to do that today, but we're going to do some today. Um, and so that was one exciting thing going on for me. Um, another exciting thing going on is we finally have dates for our courage conference for the worth recovery events, the courage conference this year for Buffalo and for Atlanta. I'm so excited. So those dates are Buffalo, New York, August 18th. We'll be in Buffalo, New York for a one day workshop, the courage conference and August 25th, that's the following Saturday, we'll be in Atlanta, Georgia, again, for the Courage Conference. So these are one-day workshops for women in recovery. I'm so excited to bring them to you um, and to expand just kind of our West Coast events that we've been doing. So I wanted to just also make an announcement along with that. So at our event, and this goes for Seattle too, if you're in the Seattle area, Our theme this year has been courage, finding the courage to engage in recovery, to do whatever it is that you want to do with your life in recovery and also beyond recovery. Because this word courage for me this year has expanded even just beyond my own personal recovery. So when we did the Courage Conference here in Salt Lake, I had this great idea to invite some of the women that I know to tell their courage story. And so they came and they told and shared with us their experiences about courage. Uh, We had one that talked about the courage to fully engage in recovery. Just doing that process is hard. 
the courage to let go of a relationship, uh, the courage to grieve. And then we also had the last one was um, the courage to challenge ourselves and to accept our story or challenge the things that we believe about ourselves and to figure that out and to move on. It was amazing to have these women share their stories with us. And it was so inspiring. Now, what I want to do is do that same thing in these three other cities we're going to be at this year. Um, Buffalo, New York on August 18th, Atlanta, Georgia on August 25th, and Bellevue, um, I was going to say Seattle, but it's not really Seattle. So it's Bellevue, Washington. It's close to Seattle, but Bellevue, Washington on September 29th. So what I'm looking for is for members to be part of what I call the Courage Council. These women to get up and share their experiences with us around courage and to to tell their part of their story and then to take some questions. So if you have a particular experience or you feel like you would like to share your story with us at this workshop, um, get online. There's a place on the website under the Courage Council for you to send in your information. We would love to hear from you. We would love to hear your story. I've said this. I can never stop saying this enough because I've said it a million times, but I'll say it again, is that every time I hear someone's story, I heal a little bit more. And every time I share my own story, I heal a little bit more as well. There's new things that fall into place. There's new connections that I make. Even when I tell my story, you know, for the hundredth or 200th time, I make new connections as I tell that because I'm ever evolving and changing. And so being able to tell and share and hear the stories of other women help us all to heal. So we would love to hear from you. I would love to hear from you. You can get on the website. If you haven't been on the website recently, check it out because I just totally redesigned it and I'm so excited about some of the things on there. So get on the website, go to the Courage Council or go to the Courage Conference. The dates are right there on the front page. And if you would like to join us or like to share your story, uh, fill out the form under the Courage Council. We would love to hear from you. Registration for these three events are, is not quite open. I'm hoping to get that done this week or next. So we will get that to you soon. Uh, but there is a place for you to enter your email if you want. And, uh, and as soon as it's open, we'll send you an email. So Courage Conference coming up in Buffalo, New York on August 18th, in Atlanta, Georgia on August 25th, and in Bellevue, Washington on September 29th. One more announcement before we get to the content for today. So a couple episodes ago, I talked with John and Jackie from the Thanks for Sharing podcast about dating and recovery. So I wanted to just kind of revisit that for a second. We are so excited. I, I have just really seen this massive need as I've done recovery coaching, as I've worked with several of you, as I get emails and questions from you. There's this massive need for help in that, what we call like the relational space, right? Um, after we get into recovery and after we get sober and kind of stabilize our lives, then we have to look at the relationships around us and figure out what is happening there. What are those dynamics that help us to make better, secure relationships, healthy, fulfilling relationships? How do we, how do we do that? I know I have not been good at that. 
Um, that's been one of my challenges as I get further into recovery is to really change the way I interact with people to create a better, a better space. I got some feedback this last weekend (laughs) that I don't do that well. Um, that I kind of give off this, uh, maybe this vibe that I don't really need relationships. Um, and I, it was uncomfortable for me to hear, but very necessary. And I think really good to challenge myself around these, these areas. So I saw this need and John and Jackie were also seeing that same need. And so the three of us are collaborating on an intensive program called One Layer Deeper. Because when we get into recovery and we kind of stabilize ourselves, there's still some layers that need to be talked about. And a big part of those layers are the relational space. And so we have our very first intensive coming up in July. No, in June. I didn't mean to say July. In June, here in Utah, it's called Dating in Recovery. And we're going to talk about all things dating and how that works. We're going to talk about the stages of relationships. We're going to talk about what's prohibited you from dating, finding connection in the past. Where are kind of your pitfalls that you fall into? And then by the time we're done over the weekend, you'll walk away with a dating plan and some areas that you might be able to work on um, with your therapist or with other people in your life to be able to really dig into what does dating look like in recovery? Now, this is open to addicts. It's open to partners. Maybe, I mean, you do need to be single, but maybe you were a partner of an addict for a long time and now you're divorced and you're wanting to get back into that dating space, but you're afraid you're going to attract another addict. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Um, Maybe you're an addict in recovery and you're not sure how to navigate dating in recovery. We're going to talk about that too. So both sides of that coin we're going to talk about in this intensive. It's coming up in the end of June. Um, And if you want more information, you're interested in that, you can contact me directly if you want at amy, A-M-Y, at worthrecovery.com. Or you can get on the One Layer Deeper website. It's just what it sounds. One O-N-E, layer, L-A-Y-E-R, deeper, D-E-E-P-E-R.com. And we'll talk about, and you can, oh, on that website, you can email us or you can set up a a discovery call, uh, a call where you can talk to one of the three of us and decide if this is a good match or get your questions answered or anything like that. So coming up in June, check it out on the website, onelayerdeeper.com. I'm really excited about it. And I'm really excited about the additional intensives we're going to have coming up in the future. So there you go. Those are all of our announcements today. That felt really long. So let's jump right into the content of what we have going on today. So our episode today is about the courage to stop the drama, right? The courage to get off the, we used to call it the roller coaster of drama, and to really look at those dramatic relationships you have going on in your life. If you're like me at all, you feel like even once you're sober, you're starting to feel like there's just this element of drama going on in your life and you're not really sure how to navigate it or what it means or if it's your fault or if you attract drama or any of those questions. Maybe that's something that you struggle with. 
maybe you've heard the comment or maybe someone has called you or, or said something to you like, you are so much drama <laughs> or you, I know I've heard that she is all drama, right? And I've said that probably about people I know in my life, just looking at the amount of drama that they bring into a relationship. So I want to start by just defining what exactly is drama. We throw that word around. We talk about it a little bit. What is the definition of drama? If you had to define drama, what would you say that it is? I was really um, surprised. I don't know if that's the right word, but just kind of a little bit surprised by what I read in the dictionary, which is the dictionary defines drama as unnecessary overreaction, response, or emotion to a situation, a person, or a circumstance. So one more time, that's unnecessary overreaction, response, or emotion to a situation, a person, or a circumstance. The thing that really hits me about that definition is the word unnecessary, right? Because we are supposed to respond to people and maybe even over-respond, right? Overreact. Um, we are supposed to show our emotions and definitely share that and be vulnerable with other people and in different circumstances and in different situations. But the element of drama comes when it's unnecessary. When we're responding to something unnecessarily, maybe it's an unnecessary emotions that we're throwing out there. Maybe it's unnecessary overreaction. Whatever it is, it's unnecessary. And that is that element of drama that brings in. It's unnecessary. When I think about like TV dramas, what makes them so dramatic? It's that unnecessary piece of over-response or over-emoting, that unnecessary piece. So today, I want to talk to you a little bit about drama. We're going to do this in a two-part series. So today, we're going to investigate what is known as the drama triangle. And then in our next episode about this, we're going to talk about how do I get out of the drama triangle. So today's, the goal of today's episode is to help you identify the roles in the drama triangle and find where you start. What's your starting point? What's your familiar chair? Kind of what's your default reaction or setting? And to help you also see where, how you navigate that. And then next time we'll talk about how do I get out of it? How do I stop that drama? So if you haven't heard of the drama triangle before, I'm always surprised um, at the number of people who haven't heard about it. But really, I had never heard about it until I entered recovery. So I want you to kind of imagine a triangle in your in your mind, right? Or if you're driving or looking around or whatever, you see a triangle. Notice that a triangle has three points or corners or angles, whatever you want to call them to it, right? They have three sides and three angles in a triangle. If I don't have three angles, then I don't have a triangle, right? If I only have two, then there's no triangle. If I have four, then I have some kind of quadrilateral. Um, uh, yeah, sorry. I was going to give you like a big geometric definition, but you don't need that. So we're just talking about a triangle, three corners of a triangle. In the drama triangle, now um, these three corners represent three different roles that are necessary in order to have drama. 
Okay. These three roles are necessary in order to have drama. So the first one we call the victim. The second one we call the persecutor. And the third one we call the rescuer. So these are the three roles that come out in drama. And again, in order to have a triangle, you have to have three angles. In order to have like this drama, we have to have three roles. We've got to have all three going on at the same time. If I don't have three, then I don't have the unnecessary piece of drama that would that would come across because of this. So real quick, the historical aspect of this. I feel like I've been talking just so quickly today. And that's probably just the amount of energy I have going on today. So the history of the drama triangle. So it was originally published 40 years ago in 1968, right? By Dr. Stephen Cartman. And a lot of times it's called the Cartman Triangle, K-A-R-P-M-A-N. Now the, the goal and the purpose of this in, in Dr. Cartman's words is that it models connections between personal responsibility and power dynamics. So I, I kind of like that definition that this triangle models the connection between personal responsibility and power dynamics. Uh, we're going to talk about that as we go through each of the roles and how they play along. Also, again, in his words, um, this says, oh, I should have continued that sentence. Sorry. I'm like, how come that doesn't make sense? So this, uh, the the triangle models connections between personal responsibility and power dynamics along with the destructive and shifting roles people play in conflict. So I'll read that one more time just so you're clear about what this triangle models. So the triangle models connections between personal responsibility and power dynamics along with the destructive and shifting roles people play in conflict. So what I love about that definition is just this idea, well, a couple things, of personal responsibility, responsible ownership of ourselves. You'll see that if you're in the drama triangle, you are not taking personal responsibility. And we'll talk about that as we go through. Also, the power dynamics. What is going on power-wise in certain situations? And how in certain situations also, you don't necessarily have control over the power dynamics and how that affects you. And then also that this models the destructive and shifting roles people play in conflict. For me personally, and I'm going to give you some examples today, it is very easy for me to flip back and forth between some of these roles and understanding that, you know, we, I think it's important to understand how easy it is to flip back and forth between these roles. So I want to talk, give you kind of first, give you a description of what each of these roles look like. And then I will give you some examples. So we're going to start with the victim. Okay. The stance of the victim is poor me, poor me. Can you believe this? Poor me. Victims see themselves as victimized, oppressed, powerless, helpless, hopeless, dejected, ashamed. And in my experience, they come across as super sensitive. They sometimes want that like special kid treatment, right? They want to be treated a certain way. Um, they want people to 
cater to them. And they also it deny a lot of responsibility um, for their needs. They're dependent on others to meet their needs and they deny that kind of personal responsibility of meeting their own needs. I find that victims are always in that like explain explanation territory all the time of like why they're such a victim or why these things are happening to them. And they might go on and on in an explanation about why they did what they did. Um, again, never being their own fault, right? Like I did this because blah, 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 and this and that happened to me and blah, and on and on, right? That idea of why they did what they did. They feel like they need a lot of explanation around that. So again, you know, victims are oppressed, powerless, helpless, hopeless, dejected, ashamed, and they come across as super sensitive. I also find just in my own experience, um, when I'm in the victim chair or others, I've seen others in the victim chair, I have a really hard time making decisions. Um, because I don't want to own anything, right? So like, if it's not my fault, if I'm the victim, then I don't want to own any responsibility for anything. So I don't want to make decisions, um, easy or difficult decisions. I have a really hard time solving problems because I just don't see any way out. That's part of that powerless or that helpless feeling. I just don't see any way out. So I, I have a hard time solving problems and I find that, um, I'm a little bit, what's the right word? Like self-destructive, I guess I would say. I'm kind of blowing up internally. Um, I'm not able to really think clearly or see clearly. Um, and I don't really see a way out at all. So kind of self-destructive. That's how, that's what the victim chair looks like. Uh, that's how I have sat in the victim chair as well. So again, helpless, hopeless, not my fault, super sensitive, uh, a lot of shame and a lot of feeling powerless and not able to make decisions, see clearly, uh, feel like I need to give a lot of explanation about why I'm doing things. Um, and I'm always searching for someone to save me or someone to rescue me, right? If I'm a victim, then I like the only way out is for someone to come and save me because I can't do it myself. That's part of that powerlessness feeling. I just can't, I can't do it. So I'm helpless. I need someone to, to save me. And so that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the gist of the victim, right? The gist of the victim. Now, every victim, like I said, is looking for someone to, to kind of save them. And so I want to flip to the role of the rescuer in the drama triangle. What is the rescuer? So the stance of the rescuer um, is kind of their mindset is let me help you or I can fix that. That's kind of how it shows up for me. I can fix that, right? Rescuers, I think, work hard to help and caretake other people. And they even need other people to feel good about themselves I need you to feel good about yourselves. I don't, it doesn't matter what it does to me. Um, a lot of times there's a lot of neglect of the rescuer's own needs. Uh, they don't take a lot of responsibility for meeting their own needs either. So similar to a victim. Um, but as a rescuer, that's not my goal. My goal is to help you meet your needs. Um, 
And again, the mentality or the mindset is let me help you. For me, it's a lot of I can fix that. That's kind of how it shows up for me. Um, as a rescuer, we deny our own needs. It's my job. I have no needs and no wants. So people ask me, you know, what's going on for me? I'm good. Things are good, right? Um, it's my job to fix other people. I can make it all better. That's another phrase that goes through my mind. Uh, rescuers are classically codependent and enablers. Um, they shield people from consequences. Um, they need victims in their lives to allow them to use this power of helping other people, right? If I don't have victims in my life, I don't have anybody to help. So I need victims in my life so that I can help people and help them to succeed and help them feel better. Uh, they also can, that enabling piece, I think, rescuers have a tendency to, because they enable other people and shield them from consequences, uh, their victims, these people that they're helping, stay dependent on them. And uh, that's, that's a problem for a rescuer. So that's, again, kind of just the, the gist of a rescuer. Um, I would say, in my experience as a rescuer and those that I also see, that rescuers are usually overworked. Um, they're often very tired and they're caught in kind of this martyr, martyrdom style of living, right? Like, I'm going to sacrifice everything that I am and have and need and want in order to help you. And that's, that's a problem because as I'm not taking personal responsibility for my own life. Um, so again, this is a model of personal responsibility. So a victim doesn't take responsibility for their own needs and they have that attitude of poor me. A rescuer doesn't take responsibility for their own needs. Um, their attitude is self-sacrificing. I'm going to sacrifice my needs. I'm going to help you. Let me help you. Let me fix it for you. Now, in order for both of those to I mean, those in itself might seem dramatic, right? Those two roles of victim and rescuer. And, and those two interact, I, I think, a lot. But in order to really add the drama here, um, we need a third, a third role. And this third role is a persecutor. The stance of the persecutor is, it's all your fault. Uh, persecutors criticize. They blame victims. They set strict limits. They can be controlling. They can be rigid, authoritative, angry, unpleasant. Unpleasant seems like a mild word, but that would work. Um, I see a lot of persecutors who are ragers. Um, they, they keep it calm for a while and then erupt into just total rage. Uh, they keep the victim feeling oppressed, right, through threats and bullying. Like, I can't have a victim if I don't have a persecutor of some sort. A victim will create a persecutor if they don't feel like they have, you know, something going on but need to maintain their victim mentality. Um, I would say persecutors, in my experience, persecutors are very inflexible, right? Um, they're very... They won't be vulnerable. They can't be vulnerable. They don't allow themselves to be vulnerable. Uh, they can't be human. Persecutors can be very perfectionistic um, and just won't be human. They fear um, 
they fear the risk of being a victim, right? Oh, I, I see like this cycle of victim um, and then a persecutor doesn't want to be a victim. They don't want to be a victim, so they become a persecutor. Uh, they criticize pretty much everybody and everything. <laughs> um, they have emotional outbursts. Uh, they can rage. This raging, like I said, they can that can be covert or overt. Like sometimes they're direct raging. Sometimes their raging is behind the scenes. But they definitely can be ragers for sure. So we've got these three roles, right? Um, victim, rescuer, and persecutor. Now, the description I've given are kind of the most extreme cases. Um, you can be very mild in your tendency towards one of these roles, but you're still in one of these roles. Uh, I would say that the victim, right? So I'm just kind of going through my notes. So a victim is constantly trying to find someone to save them. A persecutor is always searching for someone to blame. Um, and a rescuer is always searching for someone to save. So you'll see that in these three roles, there is not a chair or a seat for a functional adult, right? There's not a chair or a seat for someone who wants to be responsible. Because if I am in any of those three chairs, I am not being responsible for my own needs or my own life. Now, each of us probably have some type of favorite chair. And I don't know if favorite's the right word. Maybe the right word is familiar. We each have a familiar chair. One of kind of a default setting. One that we tend to to gravitate to through this process. For me, that has always been the rescuer chair. I can fix this. That's the rescuer chair. I can fix this. I can fix this. I can fix this. And I will sacrifice my own needs, my own wants. I grew up very wantless, very needless. Even as an adult, I have a really hard time identifying what I need or what I want because that was not allowed for me um, as a rescuer, I couldn't have needs or wants. If I wasn't a functional adult, I would take responsibility for myself and have a solid sense of self. And there is no place for me in that drama triangle. And I love that because what that means is if I find myself in drama and as kind of a member of this drama triangle, then that means that I'm not using my functional adult skills. And that to me is just shows an area for growth. Now, whenever you sit or assume one of these roles in the drama triangle, you need the other chairs to be filled in order for you to fulfill your role. So if I'm a rescuer by nature, or that's kind of my default setting, I need to see the world as victims and persecutors right? I need this other, these two other roles to be filled so that I can fulfill my role. So I need victims. And a lot of times I used to joke around, like I must have some like sign, invisible sign on my forehead that says I can save you or I can rescue you because I felt like I was constantly, that victims were constantly being drawn into my life. Well, I kind of did. I kind of did have that role or that sign on my forehead 
because I was sitting in the rescuer chair and I was walking around looking at the world for people to save. Now, in order to have people to save, I also need to have persecutors that oppress these people. And so I'm also looking for persecutors. I also see the world in terms of persecutors and victims because there's no victims if there's no persecutors. And so these three roles are interchangeable and they are necessary. I have to have all three. To play my part, I need others to fill up their parts. So when I look at the world like that as victim and persecutors, or if I'm a persecutor, then I'm looking at the world as rescuers and victims, right? If I'm a victim, I look at the world as persecutors and rescuers. Either option, whatever chair is familiar to you, I'm looking at the world in binary mode. There's two extremes, two options. And I'm not looking at the complexity of the world. This sets me up for black and white thinking. And black and white thinking is not successful. It's not healthy. Uh, When I interpret the whole world this way, then I find problems everywhere I go. I find fault everywhere I go. And I set up my world to be very dramatic right? A lot of the drama that we have in our own lives is kind of self-perpetuating, right? If I assume this role, then I look at the world that way. This information for me has been life-changing. Understanding the Cartman triangle, the drama triangle, the three roles has really helped me to understand why I was struggling. It explained why all of my relationships seemed dramatic, It explained that flair for drama that I seem to have. And it explained why I struggled and still do sometimes struggle to relate to people in general. Now, I've done a lot of work around this because first I had to fire myself from the chair, right? I had to get up from the chair and say, I'm no longer sitting here. And that was hard because a lot of people are invested in having me sit in a specific chair, just like your life is probably that way too. If you sit in the victim chair, there are relationships that you have, people that are invested in having you sit there. Because again, if, if if I want my role, then I've got to have people to fill the other chairs. Now, now that you know that, now that you've seen this triangle, now that you understand these three roles, you're going to start seeing this all over in your life. So I would say first, you need to identify your role, okay? What is your default setting? What role do you default to most often? Where is your familiar chair? And then you'll start seeing in your life, who have I set up to be in the other chairs, right? If I'm a rescuer, who have I set up to be in the other chair? So I'm just going to give you a quick example. I realized that this has gone a lot longer than I thought, which is awesome, because we all need help being figuring out the drama triangle. So let me tell you, I'll just give you one example. I had a couple, but I'll just give you one real quick. So acting out. When I was living in addiction and acting out, I was a persecutor. That was kind of the role that I was sitting in. And I think it's kind of blurry because I could say I was sitting in a victim too, like poor me. And actually, let's let's start there. And I'll I'll give you an example of how it shifts. But let's just start with I'm a victim chair. 
Okay. I'm sitting in the victim and I'm saying, poor me. And the, the words that were going through my head and the things that I would tell myself are things like men aren't attracted to me. I'm tall. Um, I'm big. I'm loud. I have a, a big personality. I'm intimidating. Men aren't attracted to me. Right. And so it was like this poor me, poor me. Men aren't attracted to me. I felt really helpless about it. I would say things like, I can't help that I'm six foot tall like that. I can't control that, you know, like that doesn't, um, that's not something that I can like get a surgery for. Uh, I remember like, it sounds funny now, but it was very, very real in the moment. I felt really helpless. I felt very hopeless. I felt like I couldn't have a relationship. I felt, um, that there was just no, no way for this, for this to work for me being in a relationship or having relationships. So if I'm sitting in the victim chair, I need rescuer and I need a persecutor, right? And so my persecutor, um, I turned my higher power into my persecutor because people would say things to me like, you know, God made you the way you are. You're beautiful the way you are, but that wasn't working for me. I was six foot tall. If God made me six foot tall and men aren't attracted to six foot tall women, then that's a problem, right? If God gave me all this energy and passion and big personality and assertiveness, and that's not attractive to men, then God's at fault, right? And I turned God into this, my higher power into this kind of persecutor. And I had a really rough relationship with my higher power because I viewed him as my persecutor. And then I set up all these acting out relationships to be my rescuers. These men that would come in and rescue me and find me attractive and spend time with me and lust after me and all of those things. And I, I set up this power dynamic within my, um, within my addiction. That's just one example. I, I have some more that I'm going to share on our next episode when we talk about shifting roles. How do these roles shift? How do I move between role to role? And then also we're going to talk about how do I get out? So we actually might end up with two more episodes because this took a lot longer. I have a lot of thoughts around this. And so this episode ended up a lot longer than I anticipated, which is awesome. So maybe we'll have two more episodes. In fact, I, I'm just going to say that right now. We will. Because I have another episode about how do I get out, but I feel like we need to talk about how these roles shift in our lives and how we set up these power dynamics. So we will do an episode about that first, and then we will do an episode about how do I get out of the drama triangle? Because that's really what we want to focus on, the courage to step out of the drama triangle. So today, as you go throughout your life, wherever you are, wherever you're dealing with anything, I want you to remember that you are worth recovery. You are 100% worth recovery. No matter what's going on, no matter how far you think you've gone, no matter what chair you're sitting in, if it's victim, persecutor, rescuer, you're not sure, no matter what that looks like for you, you are worth recovery. If you don't believe that, you can just trust me until you do. Because you are. I met so many of you while I was in, in Phoenix at the ITAP Symposium and I was so grateful for so many of you. And I'll just do a quick shout out to Amy and to Jenny who traveled to be there and to see people connect with other women in recovery. 
you are worth this. And I know that it's hard and I know that it's challenging and I know that you can do it. So keep going. Keep staying engaged in the struggle. Keep finding the courage you need to start again, if that's the case, and to make it happen. Call or reach out to me, um, Amy, A-M-Y, at worthrecovery.com. Uh, get online, check out the new website. I'd love to hear your feedback or thoughts on it. Also, get online and check out uh, our upcoming events. Sorry, I kind of spaced it there for a second. Upcoming events, the Courage Conference. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to have you be part of it. Okay, I think that's all. So remember, I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.